Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. I am here with Amir Suhaib Carter, otherwise known as Sursu on crypto Twitter. Amir, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I cannot wait to chat about some of the things that you're working on in the space. Before we get into all of that stuff, do you want to give a little bit of background on you and then maybe how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? Absolutely. So for me, getting into crypto, it was so funny because I've been largely into it for a while. And like from like 2011, somebody gave me a crypto wallet with Bitcoin in it. And I didn't know what was going on, and I I don't have it. I'm one of those sad cases of of Bitcoin wallet holders that lost whatever I would have had in there, and kind of didn't really revisit it until 2016 when I moved to Nashville. There was a company that I was working with as a consultant that was working in the logistics industry, and I wanted to figure out how to leverage blockchain tech for supply chain management. So I kind of helped them do that. And I was like, oh, there's an applied sensor on blockchain. That's pretty cool. But then moving forward, there was a opportunity to work in New York. So I took that um, and I was a head of design for this company called Romeo. We were doing sort of like building a platform for gig economy workers. And at the same time, crypto was booming insofar as the ICOs, the, the initial coin offerings that were happening. So my CEO came to me and said, you know a little bit about crypto. How about we try to devise a, a coin offering, a token, uh, token economics within our application and see whether or not we can impact these gig economy hobbyist workers and so on. And so what we tried to work on was, and this was my first time really digging deep into my econ classes from college and trying to figure out exactly what would really make sense. And so we sort of devised some sort of economic model that gave workers sort of a UBI in a sense, kind of saying, we knew for a fact that there were going to be one to 5% of people from our entire user base that were going to just blow things out of the water, have a lot of the, the share with jobs. So if you were a handyman, a dog walker, a, a fitness trainer, a, a tutor, whatever, if you're in the top one to 5%, you're probably getting most of the work. But then that leaves the other 99 to 95 to 99% kind of stuck figuring out exactly how they're going to make things work. And even within that, there's striations of kind of a larger group of about 45% of that 95% that don't really do anything with this sort of application because they already feel discouraged. And maybe it's through lack of like great quality photos, great quality of, of descriptions and lack of training on how to market themselves that they're not able to grab some sort of market share. However, we figured if we were able to instill somewhat of a, uh, a liquidity pool for a lot of these other folks so that they can tap into and find the, the space because they have some some actual income in their hands so that they can work through building themselves up and building their name, kind of like training wheels in a sense, financial training wheels, then we figured that that might've been an interesting case study for how we could leverage facets of UBI for all types of other workers, whether it's gig economy, whether it's like waiter waitressing, whether it's working in bars or other types of 
somewhat transient roles within society. We figured it'd be sort of an interesting case study there. ICO crashed. So nobody was touching crypto. My boss was at first very gung-ho about it and then said, we're killing everything, like no crypto at all. Like it's just bad. At the same time, I was doing some side work for Celsius, doing some marketing for a little bit. And I would always attend in New York City, these talks about decentralized finance with Ethereum that Alex Mashinsky would always run every Wednesday or so. That got me really interested in diving more into the space. And then I found consensus and entered a hackathon called Beyond Blockchain for Web3. And one of the prompts was reinventing healthcare with Web3. And because I'd worked in healthcare when I was in Nashville, that was my primary job. It gave me a lot of insight and expert knowledge as to how I could build tooling. And so I built like this active identification system that basically gave medical information back into the hands of patients. That one second place, I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I am doing something in crypto. Okay, okay. Things are starting to make sense. They, people can see the ideas and how these things could be applied. That's awesome. Um, 2020, super dope though. My, my friend, Leighton McDonald or Late Effects on Twitter texted me and was like, dude, I'm selling my Instagram filters on Rarible. And I'm like, bruh, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're selling your filters? I thought you couldn't do that. And he's like, I'm selling them on the blockchain. So he shows me his Rarible account and everything clicks. I'm like, yo, this is fucking sick. <laughs> like, yo, the culture can do so many things with this. Like, this is a way of creative immortality. This is a way of like reclamation of digital identity. This is like, this is massive and started to just play around with it. It's like, okay, well, how do I mint? Okay, let me go dredge up that Ethereum wallet from MetaMask that I used to submit to Gitcoin for the hackathon. Pull that back. But uh, started to, to, I put some Ethereum in, started to mint some stuff. Things were great. Then gas fees got ridiculous after the first like two months of me trying to mint and put things. I, got, I didn't get any sales until maybe about like, seven weeks after minting, which was fine because I was really in it to just kind of experiment and figure out what this means for me. At the same time, Clubhouse is popping. I get an invite to go in there and people are talking about NFTs. But what pissed me off was people were just saying it over people's heads. Like it's this, that, like, you know, they're just saying all the terms, but nobody is grasping the concepts because most people are just describing it, NFT, non-fungible token, and like it's permanent and it gives you royalties and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's the full story. And I don't think that that's really inherently useful at first to people, because if you sell them on the financial impact that they may not realize until much later, right? Because NFTs are not instant gratification unless you're buying them. But when it comes to selling them, it's not instant. You're sending them on a path of kind of chasing the wrong value for what NFTs can sort of deliver. So I was like, I got to do something different. Only one other person was talking about NFTs in a way that made sense. That was Lady Phoenix of Universe Contemporary. So shout out to her. She's the godmother because she put me on. And then from there, I created a how to be a crypto creator. I built a whole five-day course on Instagram, all free. I wasn't interested in trying to like get money for something I was still learning, but hosted it on Clubhouse. And so I would go through the Instagram pages, like the slides while talking through the workshop and then getting people to actually like start their own wallets, buy Ethereum, so on and so forth. And that was a super amazing experience. At that point, that catapulted me into being a quasi curator because some of the people I onboarded, they ended up pushing work on Rarible. 
that work was incredible. I retweeted that on Twitter and people bought it. And I was like, oh, okay, this is great. I've literally put like 4K in like somebody's pocket that, and these people will call me and they'd be like, yo, like I've never gotten that much for my art before. This has totally changed my life. Thank you. And I'm just like, dude, I didn't even, this is still blowing my mind. I, I can't even quantify what just happened. Like I'm happy for you. Like I'm so elated that that worked out. But right now, I'm still even stuck on just like the impact of of what it all means to have created a pipeline for someone or or a group of people to 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 take agency in in their own skills and then give them enough of a signal that somebody else believed in what I'm saying to then go buy somebody else's work off the strength mm-hmm. of a word that I just started to build. So there was a, an incredible sense of responsibility that I felt. And as gas fees got crazier, I was like, this this is untenable. So shout out to Leighton again. He wanted to do a crowdfund experiment, which was off-chain at the time because we didn't build anything on-chain. But he was like, I want to crowdfund my gas fee. And by doing so, if you come in on the gas fee, then you'll get a portion of the proceeds. I put in about 50% of the gas fee, which is, I think, 100 bucks at the time. And uh, Carlos from Forefront went in with me and put in another a couple dollars. And next thing we know, we got 600 bucks cash out. I text Carlos and I'm like, dude, like his piece sold in a week. Here's 100 bucks for you. I got 500. What should we do? And he was like, he was like, keep mine. So I'm like, are you sure? And he said, yeah. Honestly, let's just pay it forward. You got some invites. I got invites. Let's just like, Put out a tweet. So I put out a tweet. That goes nuts. Jacob from Zora hits me up and is like, bro, I see what you're doing. This is fire. Here's some Zora invites. Here's some here's Tanith. Let's make let's make something crazy. And I'm like, yo, dude, fucking madman. I love that guy. And the foundation folks came through. Shout out to Pizzo. Shout out to Sam, Kayvon, the group. Like they came through too and was like, you need invites? We got you on invites. You need some ETH? We'll donate you some ETH. I go back to Carlos. I say, dog, there's no way my personal wallet is going to hold all this money because if something <laughs> happens, I'm going to be screwed and I do not want to yeah. ruin my reputation. <laughs> so he says, let's multi-sig it. So we go on Genosis Safe, hook it up, get all the ETH poured there. Donations just start flying. We had about maybe like 22 ETH in like four days. I'm like, what the fuck? what yo this is nuts where's this goodwill coming from (laughs) yeah uh and we we brainstorm on branding and then boom like the day after my birthday february 11th uh mint phone was born uh had a whole twitter thread and just kind of like saying look we're here to help artists we built out a form and uh, we put out our first batch of about 35 artists four weeks later and then we had done batches of 15 artists every two weeks and went from there and then mint fund just became like it's just now like ubiquitous with artistic development and assistance and a publicly accessible platform and good within the crypto space in just a short short period of time and then that's led into everything else that i've been doing like the weld and like which is for black culture at first before moving into all culture and then heat check which is a curation and social identifying token and then, of course, Black Hand, which is brand new, but that's that's for building a decentralized esports team. So those are the 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 four things. All of them cross pollinate in a mad scientist way that I've yet to put together. But there's a method to the madness, I would say. I love it. And also within all of this, like you yourself are an artist, right? Yes. Yes. 
So you've got your hands in so many different things. I want to dive into all of it. Before we even go there, I, I know Mint Fund has evolved into this sort of space for supporting LGBTQ plus and BIPOC artists. I want to talk a little bit about how you've seen that evolve from this sort of origin story to where it is now and all of the different artists that you've supported so far. Yeah, Mint Fund is incredible. Some of our prolific artists like Gian and Akaro or Occulted 3D are very proud and loud and secure in their identity. And it's just one of those things that I love so much because it truly helps bring broader visibility to the things that they care about. And even though like I'm a cis male, I recognize the importance of just providing space. I'm not into like in the weeds on what they're doing. All I'm all I need to be is a facilitator and say, hey, what's important to you? What is beneficial to your community and how can I help? Do you need resources? Do you need a platform? Do you need a voice? Do you need a combination? And how do we make that uh, a wonderful environment for you? Same thing with a lot of our other artists. I think we had ran a stat and it was like 95% of them were BIPOC in some way. About 90% of them were LGBTQIA and some in, to some capacity. Several were physiologically and neurologically divergent in different ways too. And so we have a very diverse pool of, of individuals from Argentina to Indonesia and, and even further than that, Singapore, Hong Kong and whatnot. So it's, a, it's just very, it was very important to me to, to recognize that crypto is a global. It transcends that of Western ideology and Western world and being able to just kind of create open pathways for others outside of that lens gives them the confidence and gives them the tools so that they can build versions of this. And I get asked this all the time, like, hey, can we build a version of Mint Fund like Southeast Asia? Can we build a Mint Fund in Brazil? Can we do a Mint Fund in Argentina? I don't care. Like this was this is the primitive for, you know, social impact. So I want people to, to, to take this idea and run with it and do do more amazing things than, than what we're doing, even though we have very amazing plans. We just, we had dropped a, um, a rewind and, and future uh, post on Mirror talking about how we're going to move forward in issuing larger grants, being able to activate our treasury in a, in a more active sense building better tools, publicly accessible goods for folks to have access to funds. So we're truly working on being an altruistic, truly altruistic dynamic place for artists to to learn, to grow, to experiment and to explore themselves and others within the community. But I will say too, what's super dope is I think what was really great and, and a super highlight for us was getting a Caro and Sotheby's, even though I've always had a, a love-hate relationship with institution uh, when it comes to the art space. Mm. But being able to provide a platform for non-binary artists on a big stage does more to amplify non-binary artists than it does harm them. Um, and so I'm, I was very excited at the prospect of Mint Fund being able to bring that to the fore and to give Carl that type of spotlight because it's not about us at the end of the day, it's about the artists and whatever puts them in the, the best trajectory for their artistic success, that's how we want to aim our missile. Yeah, I think amplifying artists that are underrepresented in crypto is such a massive and important thing to be doing in this space. And I know you've thought about 
what provenance means and and this concept of archivism and what that means for art, particularly for artists who have been systemically not given credit for their art and the things that they create. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been writing a, a thesis on creative immortality and, and how to combat erasure, cultural erasure through curation and, and archivism. And for me, my storied history is I'm a Black American seven or eight generations away from chattel slavery, right? So there's a certain cutoff point for my ancestral history that I just have no access to. Even if I took an Ancestry.com or some other 23andMe or whatever type of DNA test, because of the damaging effects that chattel slavery has had on my ancestors, I may not even be able to locate if a tribe that I was a part of exists or not. What type of localized language were my people using? What were the customs? Does that place even exist where they live? For instance, what if over the years, over the hundreds of years since that time period has happened, that territories within Africa had changed, had shifted, had grown, or had shrunk? based upon who was taking it over at the time, since it was like the Dutch, the French, the you know, Europeans, so on and so forth. There's so many different types of imperialism that was happening that it was very hard for any of us to, to kind of figure out our ancestral roots. And so what I've known for sure is that Black culture is ubiquitous with mainstream culture. I mean, it's largely because of the fact that we had to sort of create something of our own within a place that we have to call home because that's just where we were placed. And I think what's interesting about it is that from the lens of being here in America, when we think about our cultural contributions to the world or just, just even domestically, we are usually exploited for what we bring to the world and not properly compensated for it. And whether we are doing it to ourselves or if other communities are doing it to us, at the end of the day, exploitation is happening across the board. And so what I notice about crypto is that the ideas of decentralization, the ideas of self-sovereignty can be very useful tools to change that. However, it doesn't happen overnight and technology does not have any moral standing. It's how we use the things that are afforded to us that give it the moral leaning. It, it's still early for us to set a proper precedent for how cultures and communities should be compensated for their contributions to the world. And so through active archivism, it allows us to sleuth through Etherscan, through some of these other places. The blockchain is a, is a research tool. It's, a, it's the ability to kind of map out our cultural history as we've been recording things on chain. It also gives us an opportunity to then record things of the past that haven't been on chain so that they can be on chain. And as a result of that, we can build a dynamic cultural index or web that can route our contributions all the way through so that I imagine it being like if you were to present someone a book on your culture, where you come from, your family, your history, so on and so forth for the generation and 40, right? Like 40 times removed from you. How would they be able to link back into the world before and to our time that's now? The blockchain could be a useful pathway for that. And so that's where archivism really comes into play. Uh, a much more ethical form of archaeology, because archaeology is typically rooted in kind of the exhuming and, and the disruption of burial rituals, the deceased things of that nature to, to grab artifacts, to display them in museums. 
they're not necessarily really that useful because they don't give the affordance back to the places that they've taken from. So I use archivism instead of archaeology as a term. And then when it comes to curation, that just basically talks about visibility, what we know in the space. And we've seen this with the Black Punks, hence the crypto cookout, right? Black crypto punks were sort of the lowest on the totem pole of the of the price floor, the value floor, even if they had valuable rarity objects or tools assigned to them. For the most part, they were at the bottom rung. When you look at Black artists in the space, there's only a handful, about maybe 20, that have made, let's say, over $10,000 in a particular sale, not even withstanding blue chip. That's only been about two artists. Micah Johnson and Ick Shells have been the only two Black artists that, outside of celebrities that have made over a million dollars in sales. And even then, when it comes to both artists, their individual NFT work is not comparable. It has not been built up to that point. If Ick Shells is it was the highest paid woman in NFTs with a $2 million sale, it was at one point, her sales after that were still within like a one to two ETH range. When the expectation could have been that she's one of the most sought after generative artists in the space, and now we're starting to see much more of an up, but it takes a lot of us to be hyper visible in order for folks to kind of get noticed and for certain things to sort of move. So curation just means how do we build a better pipeline for us to support our work, for us to own our work, and for us to ensure that what we're what we're saying is being documented and recorded in the most accurate sense. So that's, that's the stuff that I, I, I talk about a lot in that thesis write-up that hasn't been out yet because of the crypto cookout and a few other types of experiments that I've been running. Um, so now every time I look at this document, it feels like a living and workable thing, but I will get it out at some point, I promise. I know you've had a lot of stuff going on, but I am so excited for that piece to come out because I think often in crypto, the general mainstream conversation is not thinking about ways that particularly underrepresented artists have not been recognized or compensated properly for their work. And so I love that you're thinking about this notion of archivism. And I think it's a really important and interesting aspect that crypto brings to the table that really has not been possible in the past. So I absolutely love that. And I'm also curious how the well plays into all of this. And maybe it would be useful to give a little bit of like a, a broad overview of it, but then also how it sort of and if it embodies some of these these pieces of, of what it means to record culture and history in the moment. Absolutely. The well is the cultural index. That's, that's the goal. I want everyone to have their well of culture. And again, just like the book example, the well aims to be that for a cultural communities and identities. And that obviously can mean something as broad as Black culture or the African diaspora, right? That could be something as niche as let's say generative artists that specialize in let's say simple geometry, right? That is a culture in and of itself. It's a subculture of a larger thing, but that entity still deserves to have its own well because there's a rich history there that derives as to why they've arrived at this point in time. So the well is kind of a, a bridge. It is not not a marketplace. It's not a it's not a platform, but it's an experience. It's an ecosystem or an environment, a conversation that happens with NFTs that are being generated and, and created and the stories that are wrapped around them. Writing is often the work when it comes to talking about art. Conversation is the work when it comes about talking about art. And most times we don't really have those engaged conversations happening directly within the platform in which, or the, or the space or the environment in which art exists. Why is it that when you go to a, to a museum that it's often quiet? 
what happened to conversation and active discussion about what we're looking at? Why is it that like when we converse about rarity or any type of particular topics of value of a generative piece, why is it only in Discord? Why can't we have those conversations surfaced on a particular platform in which these generative arts are being kind of like derived from? And why is it that editorial, when we look at, let's say like super rare foundation, whatever, a lot of that stuff is decoupled from the experience of buying art. But when you do look at, let's say the MoMA, you see the title cards, you see the the sprawling text that wraps around, that gives you the context for what you're looking at, why this stuff has been collected together. It reminds me of when I was taught the difference between one teacher of art history and a conversationalist teacher in art history. The first teacher I had, I failed because I was very bored. This person was just, would just say, here are some cards, Paleolithic era, what did they use? clay water and their thumbs that's super boring there's nothing drawing me in there's no narrative component it's just it is what it is but this other professor talked about the context around why the work was made in the first place and if we think about let's say uh modern art there were so many discussions and manifestos and artists talking about the art of before and why it was old and ancient and nobody wanted to do it anymore which inspired the work in which they did now People always just talk about Dada, but like Dada wasn't like the only place. There was like a futurist movement at, at the same point in time. There are so many other types of movements that were even saying, fuck Dada. Like, we don't care about that. We're all on this wave of geometry. So if you read those through lines, you can understand why Rosenberg had the, the, the white canvas, the black canvas, the gradient canvas. You can see why Roy Lichtenstein had the pop art. You can see how that influenced Andy Warhol. You can see how his takes on consumerism created in many ways the type of consumerism and nft minting culture that we deal with already when it comes to collectibles but if you're not thinking about it from context and culture then you miss out on why all this stuff is connected and so the well is supposed to act as that 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 index that connects all of these interwoven threads together and creates a compelling story for the work that you're viewing I love that because it really is an approach that looks at an entire ecosystem. It's almost like when people talk about all of these different aspects of a forest or a jungle or something like that, the reality is that they all impact each other in really interesting and important ways and they all influence one another. It feels like part of looking at an ecosystem is also looking at the individual parts that make it up. And I had Sin Bahati on the podcast like a while back, and she made this really interesting point about how her identity influences her art and the way that she thinks about a lot of things. And of course, her story is doing some really interesting things when it comes to thinking about identity in the context of collecting art. I'm super curious how you think about something like identity, particularly in the context of culture, but anonymous culture. You know, it's, it's sort of this strange ecosystem. I'm super curious how you think about that. For sure. I love kind of being in between. Like, I think there are spaces where because the lack of equity in, in certain environments, I have to be hyper visible and the anonymity goes away because if I don't use my full voice and speak on things and, and show myself in that process, then things don't get done. I think a lot of the reason why I've had goodwill and I've been just a bulldozer is because I'm very loud and open with with everything. Well, not with everything, but just with most of the stuff when it comes to my identity, like a black 
cis male, I deal with racism and I deal with obviously like bigotry and a few other things. But I also recognize that even outside of me, like there are other folks like black women, for instance, folks that are on other gender and sexual spectrums that even deal with far greater things. And as a result, it has shaped me to be a person that really wants to design safe spaces for everyone. And so I can't necessarily be anonymous to do that. I have to be pseudo-anonymous. I could, it could work. But the more open I've been, the more comfortable of an environment I've been able to create. And yeah, it's it's a reputation thing. I stake my reputation on it daily. If something bad happens, then that's something that like I have to deal with. But thankfully, nothing has. I don't think anything will. But I'm willing to to put myself out there because we have to have pillars that are visible that people can look to and say, this person is building safe space. How do I find a way to duplicate that? And I'm always open about sharing so that there are more pillars so that it's not just me holding things together. It's a group of us that are doing it. And that group goes into a larger group and a larger group. And some people at that point in time may not even have to be visible anymore because the systems are already been put in place. But I recognize the need that for me, my identity is about showing myself because there's power in that. The anonymity I used to do only when I was like not 13 and I was trying to get into like <laughs> fashion subnet forums, like super future. <laughs> like, but other than that, like outside of that, I've, I've always been pretty open about, about myself. So I think that that's my superpower that I can wield. And if it helps break down barriers and open doors, then, you know, I'm willing to do that work. I think that's super important. And your point about having these pillars, I think is really interesting, particularly in the context of culture where holding that space almost creates the opportunity for, to your point, people to create spaces that are similar to it or inspired by it. And this way for culture to sort of mutate and grow, I think is incredibly interesting. And one that if we don't hold that space, and if people like you don't stand up and sort of take on the responsibility, at least initially, of creating those spaces, then there's a much lower likelihood chance that those spaces even get created in the first place. So your thought with the well is that it will sort of grow and evolve into something that allows these like micro cultures to exist across the ecosystem. Is that the the longer term vision? Correct. Correct. Yeah. My gambit is we start with black culture because it'll do so much, I think, personally and selfishly for, for the culture that I've been born into, identify with my entire life. And if that works, then this is a powerful engine of narrative. And then, of course, that should be available and accessible to, to everyone so that they can have these spaces for themselves. But I wanted to start with us first because I'm the most connected to it. And I understand that there is a, a unique need for us to have a space of reclamation and so that we can build for ourselves and then allows us to then contribute to others. What, I, what I've always wanted is to ensure that there is a dynamic network in which every contributor to culture is, is rewarded. It's not just about an artist minting an NFT, finding a collector, but the storytellers in between are also very great catalysts for sales to happen, whether they are called curators, whether they're just folks who are just super interested, whether they're editorial writers, conversationalists, just tastemakers of culture. Um, all of these people are very, very important within the ecosystem of bridging between art and a new collector. It's a reason why folks of affluence had salons and had like these these events and and have very like interesting things around them or on them. It's because it's curating a particular look or image 
And whether or not these things are good or bad, they always start a conversation. And and if you go to someone's house and like, like for instance, if you went to my apartment, I don't really have like fancy, fancy things, but if you, I have a lot of books. And so if we had a conversation, I would mention probably six, seven or eight, nine or 10 of these things in the middle of a conversation, bring them to you. And then next thing I know, I've had people say, can I loan, can I borrow this from you? Or where can I get this book from? so on and so forth, or they would do something inspired by this thing. And then next thing, something else has happened. So we're always, everyone's always influencing other people in, in a minutia of ways, but even some of those like minute things become big, impactful waves much later. And so those things should be recorded and, and, and the value should be given to those folks for creating those ripples. Yeah, it does feel like you even see this play out on crypto Twitter in a grander scale, which is people just built on each other's ideas in really interesting ways. I'm curious, like, how do you break down culture? So you mentioned sort of curators and tastemakers. What do you think of as almost like the foundations of culture? It starts with an idea, right? Like, and then that idea is tested in the wild. I mean, a simple way of thinking about culture is the decision to, to change a word, or to shorten or to make something or to say a new word, something that's different. I don't know what that word could be, but maybe you create a different word that describes a phrase of something exuberant. And you use it a few times to see if it catches on. Somebody else uses it. Then somebody else uses it. Somebody else uses it. The next thing you know, it becomes a thing on its own. Now, in the beginning, the first few people are going to ask, what does that even mean? And you explain it to them. And if your explanation or your story makes sense, it gets passed down because now this other person feels motivated to use it because it makes sense. By the time they tell the story, it becomes such a hyper-evolved version of it that your original context just ends up becoming something completely different. It's a path of culture that happens often. Um, language is, is usually one of the first catalysts for culture shift and identity change. Next after that, definitely through art and obviously language and art, all this stuff is falling under this sort of like liberal arts type of sphere, right? This creative sphere. So language is one. Art, music are another. Somebody views the world in a very interesting context motivate someone else, then somebody is going to riff off that and riff off that and riff off that. The same way you talked about how people build on each other's ideas on crypto Twitter, that's culture happening in real time. The experiment for how PartyBit came to be was the Mirror folks talked about what if a DAO could just come through and just like bid on a piece and then Anish, the god, built it in a weekend and then deployed that same test on a Colin and Samir post crowdfund on Mirror. Super meta. But in any case, it ended up catching wind. From that point on, PartyBid created a DAO, PartyDAO, then de deployed PartyBid as a full product, then created Punk's House, then the Crypto Cookout. Now NounsDAO is doing stuff, and now other people are trying to do stuff. And now community folks are talking about what this means for wealth generation and access to high-valued items like blue chip art pieces that could be better than the Masterworks group for instance, right? But like all that happened within a short period of like three to four months, but culture was created throughout that entire thing. And when we talk about the big moments, the moment that the decision to build off of that idea is a catalyst for culture. The decision to then use that on a very interesting, an interesting context, Colin Samir, another valued point of culture. The decision to then take that momentum and build something much more robust 
same thing. And it's and all of this information and all of this like willingness to do something well stemmed from community voices, community support, people saying this was an amazing idea, people theorizing about how this stuff could be built out and can impact other communities. All of that is culture because that conversation has happened. If that initial question was posed and Anish built it, but there was no other conversation around it, then it's not that it's dead, but the community is not receptive. Culture always, to me, happens when a community is receptive upon an idea that's given or that's proposed to that community. And if they find that there's something interesting or unique about it that they can build a story from, then they'll go for it. And of course, all culture is story. All culture is narrative. But it takes a village to make it happen. That's, that's kind of how I look at it. I mean, obviously the end effects are the artifacts that we look at, like the NFT could be the end result. The art is the end result. Like Basquiat's work is the end result of all of his experiences and blending with everyone he's worked with and that he's talked to and that he's been around in his social lens to create a cultural instrument that then challenged status quo and got other people talking about it, which then created more cultural moments. And I think this is sort of the, what we build in this space is sort of the same through line. Like we're building things that challenge. And then as a result of that conversation, more people are piling on and creating other challenges and other parts of this conversation. And it's like an active conversation through product. And it's super cool. Conversation through product is a really interesting way to frame it. I'm curious, do you think that the ability for people to, so there's like the choice to do something, but then there's also the ability to gather resources collectively to take action on something, which feels like it is unique to crypto. Do you think that in that sense, crypto catalyzes culture almost in the way that the crypto cookout did, for example? I definitely believe that crypto can help catalyze culture for sure. I think if we're, again, and I think it's really about positioning and your, your lens and, and really figuring out what your, what your goals are. If it's to impact and to build and rally and galvanize community for, for amazing things, then the catal- like it catalyzes culture almost immediately because everyone is staking real capital towards making these things happen. A lot of times, like I mean, even when we think about cultural moments, like with Basquiat, for instance, a lot of people tend to forget that he was funded. It's not like he didn't need, he didn't need the money. His family was pretty okay, like middle class. Dad was an accountant, so on and so forth. But Guggenheim saw his talent and wanted to cultivate it. And it is through that cultivation that created the juggernaut that we know today. Obviously, there's all sorts of things about his, his particular history. But the idea of patronage, and this is kind of like one of the biggest things that crypto can afford very early and very immediate, is this patronage of this of, of actual real monetary support. And that's what almost every big ubiquitous artist ever has had. There are definitely plenty of cases of artists that have gotten out of the mud themselves, but there are, are a vast majority of artists that have been very, very prolific, have been funded, have been patronized. And that's for a reason, because direct support allows the artist to really focus and channel exactly what it is that they want to make and put out the narrative and the story that they want to push out. And patrons help only push that out into broader consciousness in a, in a much faster, more immediate and, um, and I guess, healthy way. So crypto can definitely catalyze culture, but it, it still depends on your framing and it still depends on kind of like who you're 
aligning yourself with because ultimately those, those two things it's it still takes people to make culture the tech just kind of helps us get there faster yeah that totally makes sense wow that's a really interesting way to to think about it i had never considered that so i appreciate that framing before we wrap up i have a segment on the show that's what is your favorite thing in your wallet it can be anything it can be an nft a token whatever but that is that is the question. Oh, that's a very good question. Oh, it's a man. hard one. <laughs> that's a very hard one. I'm gonna have to go. I have so many NFTs now. I think I have a couple of different favorite things. So my first favorite thing is I got two kudos NFTs for working on Gitcoin, and those are the first NFTs I've ever gotten. I didn't even realize the impact of what they were at when I did get them. They were just claimable things that like had no value, but except for the sentiment that I participated in a really amazing thing that gave me a lot of the initial tooling that I have now to even be sufficient in this space. So it's a really awesome reminder of kind of like my origin within the Ethereum network and ecosystem. And so I think that's sentimentally one of one of my favorites. The other one of my favorites are a few different things, but one is my girlfriend, she has this collection called the Aminals that she's been working on for a while. And one of them is a pecking geese dog called Lix. And it's like a really cool gif where the dog, it's like a pixelated cute dog that pops up on the screen and like licks the screen. And it, it, it always brings me some joy because it's like a, a dog greeting me. And it's weird because I like cats more, but this, 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 this dog was so cute. I was like, I have to get this. So it's it's always a fun thing. I have it on my, my mirror showcase and it always gives me a fun little surprise every time I open it up. That's really funny. It's like what your dog might be in the metaverse. I like exactly, that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That is too funny. Well, Amir, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so awesome to chat. Where can people find you and learn about all of the projects that you're working on? So I basically shout everything on Twitter at Sir Suhaib, S-I-R-S-U-H-A-Y-B. If you want to know, interesting enough, my middle name means red haired. No, I don't have any red hair, but I did dye it red a few times and I will do it again at some point. Yeah, but it's a very cool Arabic name. I use it a lot. My dad used to call me Sue if he didn't want to call me Amir, which was really cool. So that was a, that was a really dope pet name I liked. And uh, so, yeah, you can find me at Sir Suhey on on Twitter. I do have an Instagram and everything, but honestly, my activity is on Twitter. You know something big is going to happen if I tweet We Outside. And if you want to find all my projects and my bio on Twitter, it's going to have all the links to the well which is at well as culture heat check, which is at heat check me and then black hand, which is at black hand. And then the last one is mint fund, which is at the mint fund. If you want to really contribute and be an awesome person, consider donating to the mint fund so that our treasury helps support more artists globally. If you want to support me directly, just shoot me a DM. And of course, if you have really interesting ideas that you want to kind of hash out or, or build a hackathon around, don't hesitate to hit me up. Amazing. I always see something interesting going on on CT that you are behind. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.